And you're just back from a big sort of Arctic swing. What were you doing in, in Norway and wh- where did you go after that? Yeah, so I was on a ship with Abercrombie and Kent. I was the photo coach and we went from Svalbard to Greenland and ended in Iceland. So it was a real, like you said, Arctic swing and such diversity and amazing opportunity to see wildlife and the incredible scenery throughout all of those areas. It was amazing. What moments stand out? Oh, yeah, there's always incredible moments. I think when it comes to polar bears, for me, uh, you know, they have a special place in my heart. And we were watching a mom and two cubs from quite a distance. And then the next day, we got a little closer. It was a young male that came close to the ship. But then it was the next day we had a mom and a cub, like a koi, um. cub of the year. And she was hunting and the koi was um, going after her and he was jumping from flow to flow. And she, it was really, it was really heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time because we were watching this behavior and we actually heard the cub crying for its mom. So it was just uh. like, oh. Yeah, it touches it touches your heart, right, and your soul. And but you know what? For the 138 passengers and the crew, um, you know, it just became so much more real, and um, you know, they became more connected. And I think as visual storytellers, or just when they take their cameras back home or their phones and the experience, and they can share it with their with their families, their grandchildren, their friends, I think it becomes more impactful and I think we've become all better stewards for the planet and for these animals so it was it was wonderful to see how excited everybody was and to experience that all together it was really really special so I think that probably was a highlight. That's Michelle Valberg, Canadian Geographic photographer in residence and RCGS fellow who was just appointed to the Order of Canada for her photography and philanthropy and her work raising awareness of the beauty and fragility of Canada's North. She's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. We're thrilled to have Michelle Wahlberg with us. Her career as a photographer and explorer has spanned most parts of our globe and this great nation of ours, and her work regularly features in Canadian Geographic magazine. In fact, as she reveals in this episode, an early success of hers was having one of her shots selected as Photo of the Day by Canadian Geographic magazine. It's incredible photography by people like Michelle Wahlberg, which is why I'm so happy to be a subscriber of Canadian Geographic magazine. Each issue is packed with award-winning writing and photography. It costs just $28.50 a year for six print issues and unlimited digital access. And it's entirely unique. No one else does the kind of journalism about Canada, its people, landscape, cultures, and environment that CanGeo does. So please go to canadiangeographic.ca forward slash subscribe. It also makes a fantastic gift. So Michelle Wahlberg, you've likely seen her work, whether you know it or not. Her series of bear portraits are featured on Canadian stamps and her iconic image of an Inuit drum dancer is on a coin by the Royal Canadian Mint commemorating the 150th anniversary of Canadian Confederation. She's also produced multiple award-winning wildlife books, especially featuring the Canadian Arctic, which holds a special place in her heart. It's home to the charity she set up, Project North, which donates hockey and sports gear to youth in remote Inuit and First Nations communities. 
We'll get into all of that in this conversation. So let's get to it. Michelle Wahlberg, welcome to the Explore podcast. Oh, thank you, David. It's so great to be here. Well, it's a, it's a real honor to have you here. And first of all, I want to start off by saying congratulations on your Order of Canada. What a deserving award that is for you. Oh, thank you. It's kind of overwhelming still. <laughs> I don't think it's quite sunk in yet, but... Yeah, but I, I'm also I'm wondering where you were when you heard you got it. <laughs> I actually heard a month before the announcement, mm-hmm. and I was in Oslo, Norway, the day that it was announced officially. So it was really tough to be. It was really tough to not be home for it, but yeah. pretty exciting to be uh, somewhere as far away as Oslo. <laughs> I guess if you have any chance to be in Oslo, going to Svalbard, I'll, I'll take it. But yeah, so I had known for a month, and it wasn't until I was there that it was officially it was, announced. It was out in the open. Yeah, that's cool. When we have explorers on the podcast, I'm always curious about where they where they came from. So where was where was home for you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Ottawa, and I've lived in, and stayed in Ottawa my entire career, so it's uh, it's my home. Nice. Yeah. What did your parents do? My parents were in the medical field. My father was an ophthalmologist, so he was an eye doctor, and he was the one who actually introduced me to photography. He gave yeah. me his camera. Yeah, he was keen in photography, and he always had his Nikon on the um, uh, copy boards. You know, he was doing slides all the time. He was a professor at Ottawa U, so... He had a keen interest in photography, and my mom was a nurse as well. And, you know, they had a a love for for nature, and especially for birds. They were big-time birders. They traveled the world in search of of birds, and it was uh, a big part of their lives, and as was nature, and they were the ones who inspired me to, to be outside and to be amongst nature as much as you can and explore the world. Yeah, amazing. Do you remember what early trips that you took with them? Oh, yeah. Traveling all across Canada in a camper van, you know, one of those like yeah. little fold out things. And yeah, we went as far west and as far east as you could go in Canada. And yeah, we traveled a number of different places. And yeah, it was just, I think that that experience and being able to see Canada from east to west, not mm-hmm. north with them, but, you know, to have that opportunity to see Canada, I think that is what inspired all of us to to want to tr- to want to explore. I have two sisters and, and see more and experience more because I think so many people travel to different places, which I do as well. And I absolutely love, but there's so much to Canada, so much to see Mm. and explore that, uh, yeah, it made me much more aware of, of our own country and what we have to offer. Wow. So do you remember the moment you picked up a camera and started thinking seriously, like this could be something I do for a living? <laughs> Absolutely. I wanted to be a golf pro. So it was at, at no the end way. of high yeah, it was at the end of high school and I was really trying to figure it out. My father said, Are you really sure that you, you think you can do it? And I was quite a keen golfer, but I wasn't sure if it's exactly what I want to do, you know, at seventeen, right? What do we know? Mm-hmm. And uh and then my dad, I was going to Lake Placid, and he gave me his camera, and he said, here, check it out. And I came home, and I said, okay, I want to be a photographer. <laughs> and then he said, okay, so what else? <laughs> no, I mean, my parents were always, you know, encouraging us to do other things, mm-hmm. and to, you know, there wasn't anything that we couldn't do. Um, yeah, yeah. But he was think... just like, you're not going to make a living at photography, are you? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Parents get concerned for their kids. You know, that's... <laughs> yeah, well, in the arts, and... 
you know, yeah. but he he was the one who, who came to me the next day and he said, Ottawa U has a fine art program. You can get a university degree while studying mm-hmm. photography. So he was the one who immediately went out and said, okay, if this is what you want to do, how can we make that happen? So it was because of my, really, because of the support of my parents yeah. that I was able yeah. to to yeah. do everything that I do and appreciate and, and be able to imagine do what you love, right, for yeah. for your entire career. I'm very, very fortunate. Yeah, no, it's absolutely a gift. Amazing, too, that your dad's an ophthalmologist. I just think the eye, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's all, all know, goes back right? to the eye, yeah. It does, it does, absolutely. And I know, as you were mentioning, a, a big part of uh, your love of travel involves the Canadian North, and which is an incredible place, and I always encourage people to get up there because, you know, it's uh, th- there's no place like it. When did that, when did the North come into your life? I was, uh, I had done a couple of books. Of course, I started my career as a, as a portrait photographer. I did weddings, I did events. There wasn't anything that mm. I wouldn't do to make a living at photography. And always having the love of nature or any opportunity I had to go out uh, and be in nature or just explore and, and with camera or with not, um, I, I did it. So as, as I went on, I did books on portraits and I took a little bit of a break and got married and had a child. And mm. then once he started to grow up, I was like, oh, you know what, let's do something on Canada. Let's show the world what we have to offer. And slight conservation theme, you know, a, a very, uh, you know, not in your face, kind of muted conservation theme. And I knew I had to photograph polar bears and I knew I had to go up to Canada's Arctic. And then I uh, made a phone call to David Reed and I became great friends with him. And I had an opportunity to go up to Pond Inlet to the flow edge for the first time. And uh, yeah, I worked for Adventure Canada, Nunavut Tourism and Above and Beyond Magazine. I had uh, this incredible opportunity and it was one of those trips that transformed my entire world, really, mm-hmm. as far as a photographer, a person. And I, I witnessed the Arctic and I wanted to come back and tell the world and show what we have in Canada's Arctic because as a Canadian, I also felt kind of somewhat embarrassed that I didn't realize and know mm. what, mm. what we had up in the Arctic. It wasn't flat, white and cold, but yeah, you know, and it, the people, so varied. Yeah. it's so yeah. varied. So from the people and the landscape to the wildlife, it was like my mission then to, to explore and, and find ways to, to communicate and visual storytell through the Arctic. Yeah. Tell me about that first trip to the Flow Edge. What do you remember of that? <laughs> Everything. Yeah. It was one of those one of those trips that I probably was smart not to ask too many questions and just say yes, because it was camping on the ice for eight days and going out wow. by Comatic and yeah, you're sleeping on the ice with in a tent in polar bear country and but it was the first time I saw narwhal, the first time I saw bowhead, first time I saw polar bear. And it was the first time, David, that I actually stood in one place and waited for things to come to me. You know, yeah. we're, we're constantly, we're moving around, we're getting in our cars, we're transported, you know, as wildlife photographers. Or, or when we are going on a trip, you're constantly in search of the next moment, the next scene. You know, you're, you're moving around and here you kind of just landed on the ice edge and you just waited for the magic to happen. And it was, it was life changing, altering. And, uh, it stole my, it stole my heart and soul for sure. Yeah. 
That's so much of what you do too. I think, I mean, especially with wildlife photography is just patience, isn't it? I mean, really. Yeah, an incredible amount of patience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I don't always have, but I definitely appreciate those who can do it. Cause, uh, so let's talk about polar bears because, I mean, you, you've taken photos of, brilliant photos of many kinds of animals, but your polar bears, for me, really stand out. I don't, I don't know what it is about polar bears, but they, they're just, an, I mean, incredibly Beautiful, but fierce, dangerous, uh, powerful. Yeah. Tell me about polar bears. Yeah, and I think you just hit it. And when we were just watching a week ago, the polar bears on the ice, and maybe it was the interaction between the mom and the cub or the inquisitive you know, polar bear that approached our ship. I think when we look at polar bears, they are exactly what you just said. You know, they're powerful, they're raw. It's raw to see them in their environment. Obviously, you have to go to faraway places to see them. You're lucky enough if you ever get to see a polar bear. But it, it connects us, I think, to you know, I watch them and I, I'm connected through my own dog, even, you know, my own animals at home. And and um, and I, I think that tugs on, on your heartstring. And it's also, you know, they're the face, the not the face, but they're, you know, the, the sign of climate change. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it everything, it all just comes together when you think of how lucky you are to to see and witness these bears in their environment, it also takes a lot to get there. You know, it's a lot of a lot of work to actually see a bear, um, a polar bear in particular. And yeah, it, it's that whole, that connectivity, that, that beautiful raw sense of, of the wild, of nature, and uh, the realization of, of climate change and, you know, continuing to, to spread the word of, of these beautiful creatures and, you know, the the lack of sea ice or the, um, you know, their, their habitat is, is lessening. And, and, uh, as we're witnessing right now with the heat waves, I mean, think of what's going through Europe, Mm. uh, and the, and in our own city (laughs) when we're experiencing heat waves, but you know, when, when tarmacs are melting, can you imagine what, what the ice and the glaciers are doing? Yeah. I mean, you've been at this for a couple of decades now, at least. And so you've probably, I mean, you can see firsthand return to places and I'm sure see that difference, right? Yeah. And I'm not, uh, you know, I still find that I'm a newbie in the, in the Mm. grand scheme because it's only been about 15 years, but yeah, yeah, when, when you return back and then I have to, I know from the people that I travel with that have been doing this a lot longer than me, you Mm -hmm. know, when they say, Oh my, we've just, went to the 14th of July glacier in Svalbard and they were shocked because it had been years since they had seen it, but where the glacier was and where it is now, it's, it's, you know, where they were, where they're walking, you know, probably five years ago, you just can't walk anymore. So you hear it from them, from the Inuit that you travel with and, Mm. and it's pretty remarkable to hear how much the glaciers are, are receding. Yeah. I'd love to talk a bit more about your relationship with the Inuit too, because I think part of, I mean, definitely part of what got you awarded the Order of Canada was Project North and your work with Inuit youth up in, in Northern Canada. And, and um, can you tell us a bit about that and wh- you know what got you started on that? When I first went up to Pond Inlet and I went out to the Flow Edge, I was um, introduced to um, my Inuit guides and I was so taken with their stories, their life, their culture, their traditions. Uh, but also I saw their absolute love of hockey. And mm. when I went into the store, 
in the Northern store I saw, and this is 15 years ago, a two liter carton of milk sell for $18, you know, just the general cost of food. And then what they were playing with, you know, the hockey sticks and, you know, the, the old equipment and, Anyway, I I came back and then I was traveling with Adventure Canada the next the next year and I I asked if I could gather some hockey equipment and bring it with us and, and made a hockey drive in Ottawa using um, you know a, a panel or a, a group of well known Ottawans and celebrity leaders the celebrities mm-hmm. and community leaders and we had so much success in this drive that we had too much equipment. And then that drove us to having to get a locker, and uh, and then we I it also started my relationship with Kidney North, uh, first year at the time. Right. So it was just one one little aspect. I held I had an idea, I asked for help. I got help from the the south, and then I got help from Adventure Canada, Kidney North. We were able to deliver, and then after that experience, I came back and I got a call from the NHLPA, the Players Association, wow. asking me yeah asking me to put in um, a grant application for hockey equipment, and then a couple of months later, I found out I got fifty brand new sets of hockey gear to deliver and that's when i said okay let's make this a an official project and uh make it a a not-for-profit and let's continue because it just was it it just everything was working scotia bank came in diamond storage came in and uh it was one of those realizations that you know it was something that people wanted to be a part of it was a, a it was supposed to be a small easy idea and then um, now, many years later, we've delivered hockey equipment to over 30 Inuit communities. We've also come south, and we went to Kamloops this year, Barrier Lake, and Lennox Island. Nice. Um, yeah, and we've delivered over well over a million dollars, probably $1.5 million in hockey equipment and soccer equipment. And we brought up the Stanley Cup with Scotiabank. Where'd you take the Stanley Cup? We did a tour. We did it three times. We've We've been to Callaway and Kujuak, but we also were able to bring up Lanny McDonald, Natalie oh Spooner, John LeClaire, um, Marty McSorley. So uh, we had these amazing people, alumni from Scotiabank, and we went to seven different communities within three days. So we went from Yellowknife um, all the way to Joe Haven, um, uh, up to Resolute, I can't even remember anymore. Yeah. Uh, to Pond Inlet, to Arctic Bay, and the communities came out and they greeted us with parades and built outdoor hockey rinks with an iceberg, a towering iceberg as the background, and the oh kids played yeah hockey with Lanny and John, and I mean it was just, just Mark Napier. It was crazy, and then we just a community hopped with thanks to. Um, you know, Canadian North and Scotiabank. And yeah, so when the community saw the Stanley Cup coming, we were, we were just like always taken with their, their response and how happy they were that we didn't forget them and we were a part of their community. So yeah, it was awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll be waiting for the first NHL to come out of that program because that's got to happen. (laughs) Well, we did, uh, we did have a couple um, back in the day, but um, yeah, so we'll we'll see. Um, stay tuned. I think we've got something exciting coming up. Awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. 
And in terms of, I mean, you obviously when you're up in the north, you work, as you mentioned, with Inuit guides. And are there people you work with on a regular basis? And what's that relationship like? Well, obviously, when you go out into the Arctic and you're on the flow edge and you're amongst the polar bears and other other critters, and also just in if you're on the ice, you need you need guidance from um, from the Inuit and. Um, yeah, it, it, I've met amazing people along the way that have become close friends. And um, from Mayu Peter, um, who is an Inuk legend and advocate, uh, to um, Matthew, who's the jeweler in Iqaluit, and, you know, to the guys that I've, um, I've traveled with, it's really always remarkable and wonderful to spend time with them and to really understand and learn about how their life in the Arctic and, and how they've lived. And many of them, you know, have been through the residential school system to, you know, being born in an igloo to transferring to, um, you know, a community and home. So it's, it's a great learning experience as well. And, and, uh, I think it's important for all Canadians to understand and to, to be able to hear those stories. Is there a moment you remember where you're like, oh, these guys get this land so much more than I do? Like, <laughs> like they're seeing things I'm just not seeing at all. Yeah, especially when you're in a whiteout situation and they're looking ahead and they're seeing the weather come in. They understand the weather patterns. Um, they understand the importance of taking cover and, and, and the ice conditions. I mean, so much of it, we're we're so insignificant out there (laughs) and it's scary when you you know we're just we're we're not brought up in those lands and in that land and and landscape so yeah i've been in situations where it's been pretty scary and and it's the weather right it's the uncontrollable weather of they it which dictates (laughs) what we us and our movement. So, what was it? What was the big weather moment for you up there? Oh, there's been a couple, but the one that when you said when uh, I was up in Cambridge Bay and we were going out to look for muskox, and it was very cold. It was mm. probably minus thirty, minus thirty five. We're on skidoos, and you know, it it the guide went ahead. He got off. I have a photo of him in just this whiteness, um, pure white, and he's standing there outside of his cometic looking at the weather. It was from a distance, and that image just kind of translates that whole that whole scene of wow this weather's coming in it's white out it's going to be dangerous we can't go any further we need to take cover incredible so i want to shift gears completely here because i spent six years in east africa with the cbc um and one of the joys of being in east africa uh, i spent a lot of time in conflict zones but i also got to spend a lot of time in parks and the nature there is I guess beautiful in some ways is Canada, different, but you know, the, mm-hmm. I, the two places I felt most at home in the world, and I've traveled a lot, was East Africa and Canada. So, um, so what are places there that you remember and love? <laughs> Probably <clears throat> the last time that I was there was just mm-hmm. as the pandemic was hitting. So I was in Uganda and I went for the mountain gorillas. We were in Tanzania. Uh before and then we had a secondary trip to to uganda so when we returned i'll never forget going into the airport and seeing people in hazmat suits and what because you're Uh so out of touch when we were there but yeah walking with the gorillas were is something that i had always wanted to do and was absolutely mind-blowing especially when i was suffering from altitude sickness (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) i had to climb we had to i think we went up to 9300 feet Wow. Because every time that we went 
closer to the family. The family moved on. So it was uh, a long trek to get to the to wow. the gorilla family. Yeah. Well, wow, yeah. They're called mountain gorillas for a reason, I guess. That's... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then as soon as as soon as we got there, the guy turned around and he said, All right, we're here and then the skies opened up, the thunderstorm happened and it was torrential downpour and yeah. Wanting yeah. to throw up. <laughs> It was a very uh, challenging shoot, let's just say. <laughs> it was the full experience, yeah. Full experience, exactly. I got to see them in northern uh, Rwanda, like years ago, 15 years ago probably. Uh, also stunning. And also just impressed with how little they cared about us. <laughs> like we're yeah. completely like, uh, it's those guys again, and then went about their business. You know? Yeah, exactly. We had a black back sitting there rolling, mm. and then he'd sit up, and he would pick his nose, and he would eat it, and he would yeah. stare at us. Yeah. One of the things just before, I was, I had a dream, and I had a silverback come and put his arm around me. And in my dream, you know, it was my dream to have a silverback touch me, but mm. he sat there the entire hour that we were there. So I couldn't take a photo because this blackback. So the yeah. next day I went, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have a blackback or I'm going to have a silverback. I'm going to have one of them. They're going to yeah. touch me. I know yeah. it. Yeah. And then it didn't, <laughs> but it, he did walk right by me. We yeah. had an eye to eye stare. He walked right by me and then shoved our friend. No, just like went up, yeah. yeah. He just shoved her. Yeah, no. yeah. Somebody got touched. I'm not surprised you dreamed about them because when you're with them, they're, I mean, they're so much like us in so many ways. Like the connection there is incredible, yeah. phenomenal. You're a photographer, and I, I mean, I was journalist, and I'm, you know, both of these professions have been profoundly changed by the internet age and digital age, and and all that. And I'm just wondering. I mean, how, how that's affected how you work, and it would, and how what would you recommend? For younger people going into this profession, what would your advice be to them? To be a wildlife photographer? Yeah, yeah, or and photographer a of any kind. Yeah, <laughs> a photographer of any kind. <laughs> oh God, yeah. yeah, work really, really hard. I mean, it as with anything, it just yeah. because you have a camera, because you have an iPhone, doesn't make you a photographer. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, so many people uh, want to be a photographer. There's no doubt, and. So many people are. Everybody's a photographer now. Everybody has an iPhone. So it's how how you stand out and, you know, diving into your own special projects. It's one thing to make a living in photography. But I think as visual storytellers, we have an amazing opportunity to share and to develop those special projects that take you outside of the monetary part of, of photography. And finding those special projects that will make you stand out and being highly visible highly highly visible on social on websites anywhere you can and through you know I think one of the most defining things for me uh, was when after my first experience in Churchill with the polar bears I submitted to Cangio to the photo contest yeah. and I I got a mention or I got photo of the day and I was like wow you know and and to to submit and and when you have these people looking at your photos and and whether it's good or bad sometimes it's not always good or what you think because we are so emotionally connected to our own images and understanding what people are reacting to and what kind of images those are so entering contests getting yourself getting your name out there as much as possible and working really hard at it you know just mm -hmm. don't I live and breathe photography and 
35 plus years in, I'm still learning and developing my style and, and learning from other people. And as the digital age, like you said, continues to grow and change and develop, you know, you have to, you have to go along with it and learn along with it. And it's, it's forever. You know, these new cameras, I switched over to mirrorless four years ago and, you know, it's still, it's still changing and adapting us for us photographers having to adapt to those new changes and then you know working it into your your flow and and uh yeah when you have these like the video capabilities now that we have as well with the with the mirrorless cameras and everything is becoming easier and everything is making us better photographers so that's it's giving us those opportunities but we still have to work hard at, at developing our own style and working those abilities of our cameras into mm -hmm. our abilities as photographers so yeah. that was a really long answer but it's it's a lot to uh a mm -hmm. lot to take in and a lot to do to become a photographer yeah no it's super helpful and i really latched on to the idea too that i mean find those passion projects too and they may not make you a yeah. lot of money yeah. You'll, there's ways to make money but also definitely find those passion projects yeah it exactly. makes such a difference yeah so do you have a dark room, Jill? Do you miss the dark room? No, no. You know why? Those chemicals. Yeah. <laughs> but I also, because I I spend so much time in the dark room, as you know, you're, you know that there's nothing better than you know developing, stopping, and fixing, and you mm -hmm. know those smells were were quite something. But I apply like the dodging, the burning, the contrast as I did in the dark room to my light yeah. room. Yeah. So you have so much more capability and ability with with digital with with yeah. uh, digital editing, and that is a huge part. Taking a photo is one thing, but it's also post production that I fought uh, for since the very beginning, from the very very start of digital photography. I realized how important the post processing was, just as it was for for photography in the darkroom or darkroom photography or film photography, right? Half the process was taking the film, the next was developing and printing. And uh, now we have the capability of doing it ourselves and taking that control. And that can also define your your work as well and your style. So it's important to follow through with the with the post production because if you're not, you're gonna be you're gonna yeah. be left way behind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> and you are, as you mentioned, the photographer in residence for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. And what what, what does that involve for you? Oh, just you know, it, it what an honor. I mean, it's a it's a real honor for me. Um, you know, just being a spokesperson for for the magazine and for the RCGS, I am a fellow as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it, it's really. Um, it's really important, I think, as as the explorers and residents, and when you think of the opportunity that you have to, it's not only, you know, what what I can do for the magazine, but the what the magazine does for me, and to have that title um, is really um, an honor and something that I I take very seriously, and and any way that we can we can give and, and take with with each other is is super important i think that whole connectivity and that bringing all those people together to to give awareness to what it is that we're doing mm -hmm. that's always important as well so you know i think uh, in this world 
we need all that connectivity that we can get to to balance and to you know weigh on each other as well and at given at give and take situation so it's a wonderful honor and something i'm very proud of yeah no i think we're, we all feel very lucky to have you in the mix so you i mean you, you're always on the road so what's your next trip i'm going to the arctic i'm going right. to canada's arctic i'm so excited <laughs> On August 22nd, I'm uh, with A&K again. We're doing the Northwest Passage. But, nice. yeah, we start in Montreal. We fly up to Greenland. We do a few communities up there. We cross over and we do Nunavut, Northwest Territories, Yukon, oh, and, nice. we end in, and we end in Alaska. So it'll be three and a half weeks. And it is going to be, I guess, three years since I was there. So uh, I'm I'm so excited about going back and... And as soon as we cross over, because there's a lot of Americans that we travel with, and as soon as we cross over into Canada, I'm like, yeah, we're in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I was so proud to uh, to explore and, and and see the, hopefully we'll be able to, to visit communities and that COVID will allow us to do that. And yeah, that we're, yeah, I'm so excited if you can tell. <laughs> yeah, I can, getting a little hint of it, yeah. <laughs> Well, and it's the true passage, so and it's quite the journey. It's quite yeah. the journey for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, amazing that we're doing that with cruise ships now. If you consider what Franklin went through and everything else, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in the comfort of yeah, uh, no in the comfort of these beautiful ships. <laughs> um, and the question I ask everyone who comes on the show is, um, what is your favorite place in Canada? Famous favorite spot, and could you describe that for us? Oh. That's so hard. I know. Everyone that says is that too. <laughs> so hard. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorites is and we haven't talked we haven't talked about it and I do spend some time in the Great Bear Rainforest in British Columbia. It's mm. only one of my favorites though. Can't say just, I I'm terrible at ever saying that I have a favorite of any. Okay, well, let's just go with the Great Bear Rainforest. Just describe that cuz that's not a place we've discussed on the podcast ever. Oh, that's awesome. Um yeah, it's up in northern British Columbia, and I am going there in the end of September, so I'm home only for 10 days after the Arctic, and I get to go back to the Great Bear Rainforest, which I also haven't been to in the last three years. And it is so abundant with the scenery. You have the spirit bear, the Cremoni bear. Uh, you have black bears, grizzly bears. You have orcas, humpbacks, dolphins seals um you have eagles galore i mean it's so abundant with wildlife it's almost like an africa trip (laughs) Mm. (laughs) where you're where you're overwhelmed all the time and when you don't have an animal in front of you you're like oh okay now i can breathe uh it's so extraordinary and full of diversity and such a special place and i just i i go for the spirit bear Mm. but there are so many other places and parts of the Great Bear Rainforest that are special. And sometimes it is a rainforest, so you spend a lot of the time in the in the yeah. rain, but um, it is makes it, for some pretty incredible photographs. So is that flying? Like, where is that exactly? So we fly up to Terrace, mm-hmm. uh, and the, uh, we will end back in Terrace as well. Uh, some of the other times that we fly up to Terrace, and then we end in Bella Bella. So you go through all the different fjords and um, mm. the, yeah, it's it's extraordinary. So yeah. if anybody doesn't know about the Great Bear Rainforest and the Spirit Bear, because so many people have never heard of the Spirit Bear before, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty spectacular. And the only place in the world that you can see this kind of bear. 
Amazing. And is it is there still old growth forest in there or is yeah, and all the all the old man's beard they call it, and yeah, yeah the lichen that are you know falling off of the trees or the the moss that that's growing, and you know the the old trees and yeah the the fjords are are just aligned with so much biodiversity. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, that sounds lovely. Well, listen, Michelle Balberg, thank you so much for coming on the Explore podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Oh. Thank you, David. Nice to meet you. <laughs> I will look forward to meeting you in person. <laughs> yeah, when, when that hopefully all happening soon. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and this podcast, can you do us a big favor and give us a really glowing review and a five star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen? I know that sounds like a bold ask, but the way the algorithm works in podcasting, it's the single best way to ensure these interviews reach as wide an audience as possible. So thank you very much. It does make a difference. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. We'll be back again in two weeks. Until then, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a, a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We have Simpson about June 10th, with the fur brigade, consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, in this, it means that in the oral history is very strong. Every little over every inch of the country that it could be, we're hoping that he would fire at us. Oh, I guess 160.